2: You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you.
1: Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you. And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment.
3: And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg.
0: Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London—you just never know. This week we come to you from Cairo, from the Conrad Hotel right here on the banks of the Nile. If you've never been to Egypt, you've probably read about the Egyptian Museum, and if you come to Egypt, especially to Cairo, you will go to the Egyptian Museum. It is a—it's—it's—it's an it's, it's a, almost a, a, a mandatory pilgrimage. I remember going there when I was 24 years old, and it was this—you know—iconic sort of pinkish building. Um, Very dusty inside, Uh, amazing exhibits, but you had to look hard to find them because they weren't always well displayed, but you knew you were in the capital of history. And, uh, well, the Egyptian Museum, celebrating 116 years now. The building was built between, I think, 1897 and 1901. Still an amazing structure, basically a World Heritage Site now. The most amazing thing is, how many discoveries they're making of Egyptian artifacts throughout the country every single day? The actual collection of the Egyptian museum is so huge, it can't po- the current building could never possibly house them all, nor could it ever. And it's only going to get even wilder. Well, good news is on the way. They're going to continue the building, of course, and they're going to continue the museum, but there's something else now called gem. The Grand Egyptian Museum, it's opening in 2020, and what an amazing project it is because not only will they be displaying things in a brand new way, they're displaying things you've never seen before that tell the incredible story, not just of Egypt, but of civilization. And joining me now, the executive director and the big cheese at the Grand Egyptian Museum, Dr. Tartavik, how are you, sir? Peter, how are you? I mean, you and I, in, in the interest of full disclosure, you and I spent... A number of hours there this week, uh, and, and walking through just all the conservation work that you're doing, all the restoration work that you're doing, some of which on artifacts you already had in the Egyptian Museum's collection, and some of which you've just recently gotten. It is, I, I don't want to exaggerate, but it's staggering. Uh, and for me to have the opportunity to be, to be up close and personal, I mean, when I say up close and personal, I'm talking inches away from that kind of history, is I'm still uh, tingling about it. I mean, how much of a collection are we really talking about?
4: Well, we're talking about a collection of 50,000 artifacts that will be on permanent display. Uh, 20,000 of them have never been on display before. Uh, Some of the pieces that even have been on display before, after we are done with them, you will hardly recognize them because the restoration is done according to highest... International modern standards, and uh, we are doing work that is to a hundred percent reversible. Which means, if there comes up a new method of restoration, we can do so
0: without problem. Or you learn something new that you didn't know before, you can go back to what it was. We are always ready to learn. <laughs> well, I can tell you now, I learned a lot with you. We walked into one of the rooms where you had chariots, you had beds. and these aren't just regular beds, these are ceremonial beds that have been remarkably preserved. We're talking gold. But the thing that you showed me when we walked through with the lions was that people forget that the tombs were small, but these beds could never have fit in the tombs, so they designed them to basically be disassembled and reassembled inside the tombs. And they were so precise about the assembly that they actually told everybody, you know, part A goes into circle B, part 3 goes into circle 4. It was sort of like Ikea, right? Well, Peter,
4: don't be shy about it.
0: Say it out loud
4: that this is the collection of King Tutankhamun. And uh, it's true. There is so much technology that the ancient Egyptians already three and a half thousand years ago put into this collection, we every day discover something else. The assembling and disassembling of furniture, this is only one thing, but uh, having a a foldable bed, a field bed, this is something that was uh, already there three and a half thousand years ago.
0: And those were gold ceremonial beds that he never slept in? No. His mummy was put
4: on them, uh, on each bed one time, in order to ensure that he joins the sun in the eternal uh, journey of the sun every day, that he
0: is reborn every day. In the afterlife. In the afterlife. His original bed that was, was am- very simple. i got to say, that was amazing, because here I am confronted with these three amazing gold beds, one with lions, right? Exactly. And the other one? The other one was a terrestrial cow. Yes, and the a- third one was the, w- the wildest one. Yeah. This
4: is um, a mythical beast called the Am'am. Which, if the heart is not uh, beautiful, it will be uh, devoured
0: by this monster. And of course, it bears its teeth, of course, made out of ivory. Right. So you didn't have to do a lot of restoration work there. It, it was there. No. <laughs> OK, But he never in life slept in those beds. No. No. But never. then you showed me the bed he actually did sleep in. It was plain, simple, right? No paint.
4: Nope, not much paint, only only whitewashed. Yeah. Yeah, and you're restoring that. We're restoring it. We are actually, but we are not repainting it. We are just keeping the paint that's actually there, and we are stabilizing the condition of this artifact to keep it for generations to come. Mind you, it's organic, so it's perishable. So it's a big challenge.
0: Well, I think in your business, you learned a long time ago how to preserve once you preserve, meaning what kind of humidity you need, what kind of air quality you need, what kind of light you don't want?
4: Well, uh, you are in Egypt, but you are wearing a jacket inside uh, our conservation center. I was. Because we have a constant temperature of 22 degrees inside these labs and the humidity of 54 degrees, which is the best uh,
0: condition to keep artifacts. That's 22 degrees centigrade. Exactly. Uh, In the same room we saw his necklace, not one, but three. And that was also a mind-blowing experience for me because first of all, you told the story, which I'm gonna ask you to tell again, of how they were found, and in what condition they were found, and then what you discovered about the intricacy of the work. Well, in 1922, when Howard Carter discovered
4: this uh, tomb, he found these three necklaces and took photos of them, luckily, And when he tried to uh, move them up, the uh, threads turned into dust. Then they were kept in plastic bags until the staff of the Grand Egyptian Museum started working on them. They didn't uh, need to do much restoration because the faience pearls, the 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 ceramic. ceramic pearls, were in perfect condition. But they needed four months until they figured out the technique of how they were originally threaded. So uh, now we have them again the exact way how Tutankhamun would have actually worn them. And
0: the special thing is these are the ones that he actually wore. Yeah, you see there's the myth. When you, when you see the King Tut exhibit and you see the big gold necklaces, those were heavy. Those were heavy. He never wore them. Maybe
4: ceremonially once. once, but... Not on a daily life basis.
0: Right. So they can be displayed, but he actually wore these necklaces. Yes.
4: You're becoming so intimate, so close with the king. Things that he actually wore. Amazing. And they've been restored. They've been restored. They
0: look brand new. It's amazing. And then, moving along, I mean, how many different rooms do you have that are working on the restoration? 17.
4: 17 labs. And how many people working? A hundred restorers, and a hundred conservators, and a hundred archaeologists. And these are full-time? These are full-time.
0: And they never run out of things to do because you're always finding new stuff.
4: They will never run out
0: of work. The question I asked you when we walked through, and it's the question I'm going to ask you again, just to give everybody a real real-world perspective on this, based on what everybody's discovered over the last 200 years that you now have or will have on display— versus what hasn't been discovered. Give me a percentage.
4: As a student, I was told that there are still 70% to find, and I didn't quite believe it. Now, after 30 years in the field of Egyptology, I tell you, at least 65% are still there to be found.
0: Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's fly, let's You know, in the world of globalization, in the culture of globalization, and everywhere I travel around the world, I can't go more than 10 feet without bumping into an American with an interesting story. And my next guest has that. But she's not an American, really. She's a Canadian expat. American-born, though, and uh, the most amazing thing is that since, what, 2005, she's operated a farm here, and her name is Marianne stroud Gabani. How are you? Right.
5: Nice to meet you.
0: And nice to meet you. I mean, what brought you to Egypt?
5: Um, the first time, my husband, we were grad students, and he was coming home to visit his family for the first time. In 1977. Wow. That, that was the days of Sadat. Yes, it was under Sadat. It was not long after the 73 war. Yes. There were still families, refugees, living in the old mosques. Uh, and I, and old I was here Cairo. during that time as well. I know. And I thought this place was absolutely insane and utterly delightful. <laughs> <laughs> So I was. What so a great combination! Insane yes, but delightful. Absolutely. We used to travel back and forth from Canada to here between seventy-seven and eighty-eight, and then. And let me
0: guess, your friends thought you were crazy.
5: Oh, inevitably, absolutely. When I told them I was moving here, certifiable. <laughs> definitely, definitely certifiable. Well, I'm glad
0: they let you out long enough to come do my show. Yeah. <laughs> and you started what 2005 with a farm.
5: Yes, my husband died in an accident in 2000, and I spent about four or five years sorting out his businesses and his estate. At the end of which time, I decided that I had spent enough time with bankers and lawyers and offices. So I sold my house in Canada and I bought land and designed a farm that would keep me happy and entertained for the rest of my life.
0: Okay, can I ask the stupid question? Mm-hmm. Which I would ask of myself if I had done that?
5: Mm-hmm. What did
0: you know about farming?
5: Not a hell of a lot. <laughs> no, but I've had dogs and horses I, I, and, had, and animals. Wait
0: a second. I've had dogs too, but that didn't yeah. make me a farmer.
5: No, it doesn't. Yeah. But I've learned a lot. And in fact, the farm has ended up being very much an educational institution. Um, we started at the time that I moved out here. Initially, I was doing equestrian tourism. I had people who were contacting me to go horseback riding between Abu and which is just south of Giza, um, south towards Dashur, which is an area nobody was working with. So we would take these long rides, and I would introduce people to the farmers and the villagers because we would go through the farms and the villages. And at that time, you could still ride in the desert, so we could ride back past pyramids, and it was very cool.
0: By the way, I used to do that as well. And everybody oh, you cannot do this. Yeah, you can. And this is like 1978, 79, 80. I would hire a driver at 3.30 in the morning to take me out to Giza. I'd get the horses. And I'd literally ride out to the pyramids. And I'd be the only person there on my horse with the sun coming over the pyramids in Cairo. It's one of the most powerful moments Mm -hmm. that I'd ever had of of just trying to take it all in.
5: Sadly, you can't do that anymore.
0: No. You can ride the horses, but it's a little bit more controlled.
5: A lot more controlled. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There are only certain, in the touristic areas, in the antiquities areas, there are only certain people who are allowed to be in there. You have to have passes, things like this. It gets quite complicated. Right. Um, But
0: going back to your story, that's how you met the farmers.
5: Yeah. I had two horses that had been injured. Most people in Egypt just rode their horses either in arenas or in the desert. I had a couple of horses who were injured. They needed hard ground. So I started riding in the countryside. And I'm nosy. <laughs> I love to talk to people. I wanted to know what they were doing, what they were growing. Um, why were the kids here one day? Why were, where were they another day? How come they were there in the morning, not in the afternoon? Were they going to school in the afternoon? Oh, I had a million questions.
0: And you started the farm.
5: Yeah. Uh-huh. What are you growing there? Um, we grow odd plants. We, I have friends all over the world who come to visit, and they often will bring me seeds and say, could you try this? See if it will grow here. I miss um, anything. You know, we grow, we grow colored corn. I picked up a lot of Indian corn, brought it back. Egyptians are fascinated by the idea that corn isn't yellow.
0: Or it doesn't have to always be yellow. It doesn't
5: have to be yellow. It wasn't yellow. It was the Europeans who took the yellow corn and decided it was cool. Now, if they'd been smart, they would have also had taken the cooking instructions. And the (laughs) Italians would never have had problems with, uh, you know, the vitamin B deficiencies and things like this that happened in the South and in Italy from eating corn that wasn't converted to nixtamal, which is what the Aztecs used
0: now, do your friends come and visit you now?
5: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And are they always surprised?
5: Always. The, Egypt always surprises in every way. I had a bat years ago with some friends online, horseback riders, and I pr- I told them, I can come visit me for a month. I will take you riding, and every day you will see something you've never seen before. I had a friend from New Zealand who took me up on it. And she came, she spent the month, and she reported back, absolutely, she's right. She also proceeded to continue coming to visit me <laughs> for the next 18 years. <laughs> and she's yeah, an Be addict. careful what you wish for, yeah. Oh, yeah, but no, Kel's wonderful. So I'm delighted to have her. And this is the thing, you can see so much, and it's away from all the standard stuff. And this is what I... Right now, we're working a lot with schools. We're trying to introduce Egyptian children to their own countryside. This is how people live here. This is how what the Falahin, the farmers are dealing with. This is 70% of the Egyptian population.
0: Can people come and visit you on the
5: farm? Absolutely, Do you have yes. a website? Uh, we have a website. Mostly in Egypt, absolutely everything runs off Facebook. And El Surat Farm has a Facebook page where you can how you see find lots you? Of things. How do you find
0: you? How do you find you?
5: Um, you can either look up alsoratfarm.com. S, S,
0: S-O-R-A-T. Al-S-O-R-A-T.
5: Yes, it means the path. And it was... It refers to the path of righteousness. Al-Sorat al mustaqim.
0: The bottom line is if you're looking for a completely different experience, go see Marianne. She might even put you on a horse.
5: Oh, yeah. I am
1: we're not in Kansas anymore.
0: Joining me now, the the, uh, distinguished, can I say that?
3: Thank you very much, Peter. (laughs) You can say whatever you want, it's your show.
0: Minister of Tourism, Dr. Rania Amashat. Doctor, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you very much for having me on the show. You
0: are relatively new in this job, and yet, as an Egyptian, you lived through the Arab Spring eight years ago. Uh, I remember right before that, I was actually in Cairo giving a speech for the United Nations, and three weeks later, it all fell apart, and your tourism took a number of hits not just because of the Arab Spring, but then, of course, because of Sharm el-Sheikh and a few other incidents in which even you know, the British government was telling their people not to go. Um, how have you been able to turn it around to get tourism, not necessarily back to the 2010 levels, because those are your highest levels, but to a point where you can see some light at the end of the tunnel? Uh,
3: yes, Peter. Um, eight years ago, as you mentioned, there was the uh, uh, 2011 revolution. At that time, I actually was at the Central Bank of Egypt, so I was handling the economic side and and making sure that uh, everyone gets uh, their money when they need and so forth. So there was a different type of challenge.
0: Well, you had a currency challenge, too. You had a run on the banks almost.
3: Um, Actually, uh, given uh, that we implemented uh, reforms in 2004, our banking sector during the revolution uh, did very, very well. And because people had confidence in the reforms, uh, there was no bank run. Um, and
0: But it could have easily happened.
3: It could have easily happened. And that's why the importance of reforms should never be underestimated. And given what I went through uh, as a banker and being an international economist with the International Monetary Fund, I'm trying to use these lessons to implement in one of the most important sectors in Egypt, which is the, which is the tourism minis- uh, sector.
0: And of course, the word stability comes to mind. If, if you don't have a stable economy, you don't have a stable perception, it's the optics You can't have a stable tourism economy.
3: Yes. Well, Peter, you're putting all the right words in front of me, and I need to sit down and and give your audience uh, uh, sort of an an explanation of how I'm using these uh, words in my work today. So, uh, first of all, perceptions do matter. And uh, in our new branding campaign, we are trying to showcase Egyptian people Uh, As you mentioned, uh, I'm the minister since January. I'm the first woman to hold this post. Uh, We have uh, uh, women who are artists, who are musicians, uh, let alone the history uh, of of Egyptian uh, queens and so forth. So our campaign is people to people. We want to showcase to the world uh, Egyptian people. Egyptian people are people of pride, peace, progress, and passion. Um, creating that connection between people means that the power of P the power of people is above politics uh, the second thing which is very well important, if travel doesn't
0: transcend politics it does
3: it does absolutely and um, you know we just had uh, a film festival in one of our very charming uh, destinations uh, Guna and in my speech I said films are the only tourists that travel between countries without visas mm-hmm. so by creating entertainment calendars Uh, around the destinations. That's another thing that we're doing. But let me explain a little bit uh, about uh, the importance of being resilient to shocks, the importance of having a sustainable sector so that every country in the world uh, today, uh, whether as in our panel, we talked about Brexit, we talk about protectionism, uh, we talk sometimes about uh, perceptions. Uh, It's very important to create sectors which withstand uh, downturns and withstand shocks uh, and that's what I'm trying to do in the ministry um, taking my previous uh, experience what I did at the central bank with reforms at the IMF with giving other countries prescriptions of how to reform in the Ministry of Tourism we're launching eTrip eTrip a shorthand of Egypt tourism reform program that reform program is going to include pillars which create a sustainable sector consistent with the sustainable development goals of the United Nations, where you have places and people. Community development around tourism sites is extremely important. Um, um, You create people who know how to behave with tourists. You create a livelihood because their handicrafts, their their, uh, services that they provide, uh, become uh, uh, very um, intertwined. You upgrade their skills. So this is something which is very, very important so human resource development is extremely important for our program
0: you know when you try to connect the dots and explain to people the power and also the challenge of travel and tourism egypt comes to mind immediately because you can actually connect the dots between someone who comes there as a visitor and putting food on the table of the person who took them around yes. I mean it is that direct
3: um, uh, just a few statistics uh, tourism represents uh, close to 20% of our GDP.
0: Which is huge. It's huge, way higher than the international average.
3: Yes, and in terms of foreign exchange earning, if I look at the balance of payments of the country, our first source are worker remittances, people who live abroad and send, send back, back money. Uh, then comes tourism, and then comes Waste Canal. So these are uh, very important foreign exchange earners for the country. Um, the other thing is that uh, this sector is one which is very important. It, its connections with other sectors is huge. It feeds into 70 other industries, construction, real estate, transportation, hospitality, restaurants, and the list just goes on. It's Trans- all connected. Translation, it's all connected. Um, and then uh, just something to comfort everyone. Our 2017 year uh, has ended with 8 million tourists. It was the fastest growing according to the WTTC figures. Between the beginning of 2018 till now, uh, we have made the numbers close to what we saw in 2017, and hopefully we end the number of 2018 uh, not at the peaks of 2010, but very close. And And by the
0: way, five years ago, I was down in Luxor. You had 44 boats on the Nile, of which four were working. Everything was parked. It was sad.
3: Can I tell you that uh, uh, Luxor and Aswan, uh, today, most of the boats that are working, and they are definitely more than uh, than four, there's actually very high demand, and many of them are American tourists. Um, uh, they come and they enjoy themselves. I uh, have had uh, the honor of escorting uh, First Lady Melania Trump uh, on her visit to the pyramids. Uh, we have had uh, Alicia Keys come and take her boat trip, to Luxor and Aswan. We have had Will Smith. Uh, We have had uh, Sylvester Stallone. I took uh, Owen Wilson on a uh, tour in old uh, Cairo. So you're having
0: fun. Come on, you had (laughs) fun. (laughs) Um, uh,
3: I think that many people say I have the most exciting job in the world. When I was leaving my international position as uh, advisor to the chief economist of the IMF in Washington, DC, actually, uh, uh, my friend said, you're not the minister of tourism of Egypt. You are the minister of tourism of the world. So uh, everyone values our country very much. And um, given our heritage, uh, we are providing and giving the world a gift. This gift is going to be inaugurated in 2020. That is the Grand Egyptian Museum. The Grand Egyptian Museum is the biggest museum uh, um, that will host uh, the civilization of Egypt in it. Uh, It will have the full collection of Tutankhamun. I know that the, the man behind the golden mask, which is King Tut, is very popular in the US. Uh, actually, there's an exhibition taking place right now in Los Angeles with his, some of his collection, but the full collection, 5,000 pieces, are going to be at the gem, uh, pieces that I myself have not seen yet. Uh, this is going to be an archeological center. Uh, it is uh, going to, there will be a theater, there will be uh, uh, an archeolo- you know, you can go and see people restoring uh, actual artifacts. Um, The beauty of this museum is that inside you have the history, you have 7,000 years of civilization, but on the outside, the facade itself is very, very modern. The technology that is going to be used when you are standing beside each piece is going to be very outstanding. Um, I will
0: say that the old Egyptian museum in Cairo, um, their display of the artifacts was not great. It was sort of... Dusty and in and, and, and disarray. So I'm really looking forward to this.
3: Well, let me tell you, Peter, that uh, uh, because we want to put our sector on a sustainable path, we are reforming a lot. The management of the Gem was put in an international bid, and uh, international firms who are special, uh, special who specialize in museums uh, have bid for that. So it's going to be a very different display. You're going to be more than fascinated and happy. All Should there be a
1: rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant
6: $75.63.
0: American expat, senior editor at the Cairo Review of Global Affairs. But his biggest determining factor of getting on this show is that he went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, (laughs) as did I. His name's Sean David Hobbs. How are you, sir?
2: Very good. Thank you so much, Peter, for having me on.
0: Uh, How did you get to Cairo from Madison?
2: Well, that's a a great story. Actually, there's a UW-Madison connection to that. Um, I was a sophomore, and I just wanted to travel somewhere.
0: And you're a Wisconsin native too. Yeah,
2: I am. Yeah, so I—I I mean, that was even—you know—a lot of people come to Wisconsin from different parts. But I was, you know, from Wisconsin. I really wanted to get out and just see the world. I didn't know where I wanted to go, but I saw a weird thing in the timetable, uh, which was Turkish literature and translation. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know much about Turkey. I mean, I read about the country, the history of it, but—but but
0: you knew it was outside of Wisconsin.
2: I knew it was way outside of Wisconsin. Yeah. yeah. So I went to this this course, I'm figuring it's one of those courses you take and you figure you're going to drop after a week, right? But I loved it. I fell in love with it. Hey, they didn't call me Mr. Incomplete
0: in Madison for nothing. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> All
2: right. So you understand. So uh, yeah. So I I got through the course. I love the course. I found it fascinating. And the teacher like she, she she liked something about my writing. And she said, why don't you go over to Turkey, study Turkish, and work with a Turkish professor of folklore and help him translate some of his uh, some of his writing. So that's what I did uh, when I was 20, 21 years old as a junior in, in uh, at UW Madison. I had this exchange program, and the rest is history. I got really interested in Turkey. Got interested in the language. Got interested in doing journalism, and my time in Turkey eventually brought me here to actually study what Turks are doing economically in Egypt, and that uh, resulted in me getting a job working for the American University in Cairo, and that job resulted in then me working as the senior editor of the American University in Cairo's uh, publication, the, the, the Cairo Review.
0: Exactly. Well, bottom line is, you stayed. Yeah. What keeps you here?
2: I find that right now in my life... This is the place I need to be, and, and a lot of expats, people that live here, um, have maybe some complaints, uh, or you know, it's not easy sometimes living uh, living in Egypt, and, and and so you hear people complaining, and I don't understand the complaints at all because. I actually, I love the food. I love, I love the language. I love speaking Arabic. I love learning Arabic. It is an incredibly rich, diverse language. I mean, it's it's unlike any language I've ever seen. Now, of course, Turkish is a beautiful language, but it isn't as deep as Arabic. Arabic is just so rich, and so I feel like Arabic and Egypt open up slowly with time. It takes a lot of work, uh, but really, they're both uh, both the language and the country is just fascinating.
0: I I totally agree with you. I, I was here obviously before the Arab Spring. During it and now after it, uh, Tahrir Square today, nothing going on, uh, and yet we, I was here for all the craziness um, and, you know, thousands and thousands of people in the streets. Um, and, you know, for a country like this to survive that says a lot, too.
2: Oh, for sure. Uh, the country came through a very difficult time. I came actually in 2012, so I also saw a lot of it. Uh, I was actually here at the end of uh, the protest period in 2013.
0: So we're talking about Morsi, Uh,
2: yeah. At the end of his the uh, Muslim Brotherhood, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, So I saw that, and then obviously uh, uh, the country has, as as you see now, it's really it's calmed down. It's very safe. Um, It's uh, again beautiful place to be. Uh, So, uh, but yes, that was that was a difficult time,
0: and you survived too.
6: Sure. Sure.
0: How do you see the changes happening now? In what ways is it, is it working?
2: I think that we're starting to see the beginning of a successful liberalization of the economy, and this is necessary because there was a lot of price controls in place uh, from from years before.
0: And to put things in perspective, and, and it's all about bread. When you think about it, it gets down to the basics of what are you going to charge for bread?
2: Yeah. That's a, that's a huge issue, right? Uh, and more than that, I mean, be, beyond that, there's, there's certain staples people need to, to live. Um, and as the country becomes wealthier, uh, you know, prices become easier for people to, to afford. So we're, we're hoping here in the next few years, with, the, with some of the austerity measures that the government's done, to, to see uh, an opening up of the economy. Obviously, we're seeing a lot more tourists coming now, which is great for Egypt. Uh, so, so, yeah.
7: baby beside me at the wheel cruising and playing the radio with no particular place to go
0: audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com/traveltoday to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. What always amazes me about Egypt and I've been coming for so many years actually four decades if truth be told is how everything changes and everything remains the same it it, it, it you can't say one without the other um, and what also is, is is noticeable for me is how many egyptians leave and then come back uh, you can't say that about a lot of other countries but you can't say that about egypt one of those guys is my next guest uh, omar samra who's an adventurer and entrepreneur but whole, I mean, and the first egyptian to climb mount everest and now you're back i'm back you're back why mount everest because it's there as I I like kind of say a cool that. thing oh, to say
8: God. no but i'm going to say that i actually had uh, i used to be asthmatic when i was about well i was diagnosed when i was 11 years old i used to like wake up every night unable to breathe properly my fa- parents sort of uh, got a bit freaked out cuz i used to sound like Darth Vader basically at night when I was sleeping took me to a doctor he said I had a kind of asthma that would disappear in my old age but if I want to do something about it should start running and training Um, so I did that and I started playing traditional sports for the first time in my life at age 16 I climbed my first mountain in Switzerland it was the first time I'd ever seen snow and that was sort of I was hooked and And, as a former asthmatic my god yeah and so for me, Everest was sort of like the manifestation of me sort of trying to overcome my own inability. And how many inability. summits? Uh, how, ma- how many summits have I done? Yeah. Well, probably about more than 50. Um, I have done the seven summits, which is the highest mountain on every continent. So you've done Kilimanjaro.
0: Yes. You've done Everest
8: yes you done mckinley well denali now go oh, denali of course yeah. yes um mount vincent Ma- vincent massive which is in antarctica karsten's pyramid is in indonesia so that's the australasia and Elbrus, which is the highest mountain in europe and russia tell me about antarctica that was wild i mean i've been to antarctica three times the first time was to climb mount vincent second time to ski to the south pole and then the third time which was my favorite was um a trip with actually a fellow sort of alaskan climber a friend of mine his name is todd tumulo we went just the two of us, to try and make first ascents. So that's when you climb a mountain for the first time. And we managed about three of those. And we got to name the mountains, which I thought was quite cool. But being And those a, mountains are now named what? They're named Mount Samra, after my family name, Mount Marwa, after my late wife, and Mount Tila, after my daughter. And the beauty of it is that th- those mountains stand side by side uh, so the, the you know so whether my daughter she's five now you know maybe in 20 years it might be like a good sort of bar conversation for her, <laughs> or maybe she decides to go to Antarctica and climb her mountain, that you know that would that'll be that'll be kind of cool. Now let's face it, I don't know any other Egyptian mountain climbers. Mm, me neither. <laughs> no, I mean see, I, I didn't actually when I when I climbed Everest a long time ago, and then actually. I used to be an investment banker, private equity guy. I, I quit that about 10 years ago and started up my own adventure travel business. When we started, people thought we were crazy because, as you just rightly pointed out, there are that many Egyptians that sort of are that adventurous. But that has all changed. So, in the last 10 years, there's been a huge renaissance. And there's so many people like taking to the outdoors, you know, being more involved in nature and, and climbing is one of these things.
0: Well, speaking of climbing, uh, a number of years ago, I climbed Mount Sinai and I did it at night. Because yes. I wanted to be up there exactly at the dawn. And as I was climbing, someone said, and, the, and the, the strange thing about the climb, and I'm sure you've done it, but the strange thing about the climb is that the distance between each steps is like three and a half feet. Yes. And they said to me, well, this is built by a monk doing penance. I said, who did he piss off? <laughs> I mean, this guy must have done something really That's bad right, to yeah. do that, right? Yeah. And I don't know if you experienced it, what I experienced, it was very tough for me to go up.
5: Yeah.
8: It was tougher coming down. Yeah, there's a couple of routes. There's a, there's a camel route that's sort of winding. I think you're probably you know talking about one of the more direct routes. Or actually no, I did the camel route going up. Okay, so the last I think the last section you're referring to, the second part, is when you just go up those really steep stairs. Yeah, right? yeah, that's brutal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah,
0: amazing.
8: But it's it, it's so amazing, like the amount of work and energy that were put into these things. You know, back in those days, you know, those type of steps are not just cut on Mount Sinai, but all across the the Sinai Peninsula and South Sinai. There's so much of these monasteries and these old ancient paths. Like one of the things that we're very excited about in Egypt is about three, four years ago, there was is now there is a 500-kilometer Sinai Trail. So these are these sort of old, ancient, rugged paths that have been used since biblical times Cabers. or even before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and the beauty is that there is now all of these beautiful hiking trails springing across the region, ac- around the Red Sea, um, obviously you know in all across the region and the hope is that one day you know we'd be able to join all of these trails to become sort of one big uh, middle eastern trail
0: we're talking with Omar Samra first Egyptian to climb Mount Everest but of course the only guy who knows had a mountain that he got a chance to name not once but
8: three times well <laughs> three separate mountains well Ted uh I know he named no, no, one too well, no no well I mean he had done a bunch of first ascents, so he was kind enough to tell me well you, you go ahead and name those three so um, oh it I was gotta, a I, gimme I gotta thank, gimme. Him, thank him okay. for that too have you climbed the pyramids? That's illegal. So if I did, I wouldn't. You tell wouldn't you. tell me. Yeah.
0: So if we were like not on the air and I asked that question, okay, Then I say I wouldn't? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
8: No, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't illegal before. So I actually climbed it a long time ago. Um, when nobody was looking. When when no one was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when it wasn't. Was when it was okay to do so. And then now it's you can get into a lot of trouble doing that. Of course. Yeah. But th- but by the way,
0: the the the, the, the uh, le- length between the steps there is pretty tough.
8: Yeah. And you know uh, they say that you know ancient Egyptians were that tall, so someone must have been paying a lot of penance for, for t- to do <laughs> it's that. It's the same guy that signed <laughs> yes. I want his name. <laughs> I want to do. I want him to be punished <laughs> for building that. There is a joke that we have in Egypt. It's uh, it's uh, w- it must have been very hard to build the pyramids. Um, and uh, Egyptians are until this day are very fond of you know ancient Egyptians and everything like that and we tend to talk about it quite a lot and we you know we cheer the ancient Egyptians a lot and so on so they say well actually when the, the, the pyramids were built we had to split the population into two half of them built the pyramids and then the other half cheered them along the ones that built it got tired and uh, you know eventually died away and then <laughs> and then you know the you know the, the, you know, the, the, the other half r- remained so we're always wi- we're very very uh, sort of proud and excited about our heritage always
0: what's your next adventure
8: my next, adve- well, sorry. My last adventure was that I tried. It doesn't sound like a good idea now, saying it, but I tried to row across the Atlantic Ocean with a buddy of mine. Um, that didn't end so well. We ended up capsizing in a gale force storm. The boat didn't self right. The life raft didn't open, and what followed was a thirteen tumultuous hours where we were just fighting for our lives before we 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 you know, got rescued. Um, so that was a was a new foray into the oceans. I'd always been a mountain guy, so my next adventure is I'm, I'm going back to the, to the mountains, going back to the Himalayas, hopefully. So the sea taught you a lesson. <laughs> if you are continuing on to another southwest destination,
3: please
5: make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a
0: passenger. My next guest has great story to tell. He's the Guinness World Record-holding cyclist and endurance athlete. His name, Helmi Afaid. Uh Helmi, thanks for coming to the show, but you're, you're, you're scaring me here because, <laughs> because tell me what you're holding the record for, and then I'm going to tell you how scared I am. Go ahead. <clears throat> uh,
7: well, the Guinness World Record, I hold for the fastest uh, crossing of the European continent by bicycle. And that was what, 2017? That was uh, 2017, yes. Yeah. That was last summer. And... You crossed the
0: entire continent by bicycle, yes, right? Yes, the,
7: from the easternmost point. Which is where? Uh, Ufa in Russia. Okay, to? It's by the Ural Mountains. To um, the westernmost point? To the westernmost point, which is Cabo da Roca in Portugal. Okay. Yeah. And how long did it take you? That took us uh, 29 days uh, 5 hours. That was you and your team. Yeah, me and my team. Yeah. And yeah.
0: how many how many hours a day were you on that cycle?
7: Anywhere between maybe like 8 hours to f- 16 hours depending. Oh uh, well, yeah, well we take some breaks. I uh, know, but still. Yeah, yeah, straight, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were cycling how many miles a day? We were doing around uh, 120 miles a day, which is like 250. 50 kilometers maybe 240 kilometers unreal yeah. unreal yeah. and why did you do it well, And don't
0: say because it was there <laughs>
7: no well the main purpose actually we were um we were raising uh, awareness about child autism uh so that was the main goal um well of course there's also the other goal of um you know pushing uh ourselves and our limits
0: and then you did something this year yes
7: which truly blew me away
0: Because people don't realize, you know, one of the things I try to give my friends for Christmas, so if you're listening up, friends, Christmas is coming up, get ready. I try to give them an atlas. I try to give them maps. So they have some kind of sense of place, some kind of sense of perspective geographically as to where they are in the world, but where everybody else is in the world. And what was amazing to me is how many people don't know anything about it. Here we are in Cairo. People have no idea how big Egypt is. It's huge. If you take a look at the African continent, that's right, Egypt's in Africa. For those people who don't recognize that, other than Egypt, I'm thinking of like Chad and the Sudan might be somewhat larger, but that's it. And what did you do this year, Mr. Smarty Pants? <laughs>
7: well, uh, this year we um, we uh, or um, yeah we we walked from uh, the southernmost point of Egypt, uh, the s- southernmost uh, city, which is uh, Aswan, uh, to Cairo. Um, so we. Uh, Walked across Egypt uh, entirely on foot uh, along the Nile. And how long did that take you? That was uh, 23 days. And that's about what, 750 miles, 800 miles? It was, yeah, it was no, actually, yeah, it was uh, no, 900 kilometers. That's about 850 miles? Yeah, Yeah. I guess, yeah, 850 miles, which is, uh, yeah, we were averaging around uh, marathons length per day. So 26 miles a day? Yeah, we were doing 26 miles, Yeah, yeah.
0: And the cause on that one?
7: uh the cause we were uh, w- um working directly with the UNFPA and we were uh, raising awareness about um uh some issues down there uh which include uh FGM uh early marriage uh, uh gender equality um so yeah we were uh, stopping in all the villages and uh, giving uh, little speeches uh to the locals and how much weight did you lose I lost actually a lot of weight. Uh, in between uh, last year and this year combined, I think I lost maybe around 5 kilograms, uh, which I don't need to lose any more weight. Uh, so no, this is radio, but I totally <laughs> agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> but if I need to lose weight, I'm going to start
0: walking across countries. Absolutely. That'll d- do it. I
7: recommend that. I know.
0: <laughs> Did you have a special diet?
7: Uh, well, were you, carving, were you heavy carbs? Uh p- well, I like to use what's on, along the road, so I would uh, eat whatever's there uh, because I so don't. So you like falafeled your way across. Uh, <laughs> Falafel, <laughs> uh, fava beans, chicken. Um, of course, all the you know national Egyptian delicacies. We're talking to
0: Helmy Al Say, <laughs> the Guinness World Record holding cyclist and endurance athlete. But you're a Cairo native. Yes. This place I've been coming to for well since 1974. Oh. I see all the changes and I see all the things that didn't change, right? Traffic is just as bad, right? Yep. I mean, we're high up on the, in, in, in a suite here at the Conrad and we can still <laughs> hear everybody honking their horn. Admit it, Helmy. The, the, the least um, useful automobile feature and the most used <laughs> is the horn, it, it accomplishes nothing. I agree. But everybody
7: thinks in 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 Cairo that you have to honk the horn. Well, there there's it's, it's a language. It's it is a you know, like people speak to each other through the horns. It, it, that's <laughs> not I'm not no, I'm not kidding. Like you can say stuff. So you b- right. you so you believe that? No, no, that is a if you just ask anyone in the streets. You know. Uh, so that's
0: justification s- for honking the horn. <laughs> They're speaking to each other. <laughs> well, <laughs>
7: well, there's no justification. But uh, I guess if you would call a reason for it, then yeah, it would be a reason forgetting the horn story because you were born (laughs) and raised here yeah what's the biggest change that's happened here that you like the biggest change that i like um because you have a city of how many million people in cairo yeah well yeah you have 18 million living in cairo and uh 20 million total every day with 2 million commuting into cairo so a total of 20 yeah yeah,
0: and one of the most congested cities in the world
7: Yeah, yeah absolutely um well i i like you have seen a lot of change um well besides the developments of you know how uh, the city itself getting bigger um it's it's starting to have its own little uh flavor um i've heard this from countless you know uh, friends who come here they're always like i've never been to a city like cairo and me personally i've been you know around asia you know europe and there isn't you know much like cairo uh well what keeps you here uh, it's my home, uh, but uh, no, I I like everything about it. I like um, I like trying to make it better. And that's one thing that I like, uh, which is I think the most important thing. Um, and uh, besides that, uh, it's my home, so you know you kind of uh, feel attached to it.
0: You know, it's gotten better.
7: What the food? I agree. I, and
0: I'm not talking about globalization. That you know, you know, you can get sushi in Cairo. I'm talking about the quality of the food everywhere in terms of just the vegetables.
7: Absolutely. Um, I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, and
0: can I throw in a word about the mangoes? Oh, my God. Best
7: mangoes. I, I agree.
0: Unbelievable. If you order a mango juice yeah. in Cairo, you don't have to order anything else. It's your meal.
7: Absolutely. No, we, we have one of the best mangoes, actually. Uh, and the, the the specific species of mango it's not, you don't find it in any, you don't find it in India, you don't find it in the in Latin America. This the specific species, which is uh you don't find it uh, in any anywhere except here. And I, th- I think that's the specific taste that you like. Uh, I do. Yeah.
0: I do. But when you get a mango juice here, you get a mango in the
7: juice. It's
0: unbelievable. It's serious pulp, but yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah. In fact, if somebody made me a deal to say, hey, how'd you like to walk across Egypt and you can just drink mango juice? I might actually.
7: <laughs> do that. Well, actually, we. We uh, while we were walking, we, we drank a lot of uh, sugar cane juice because we went through lots of sugar canta- plantations down south, and that turned into um, mango plantations as you go into the n- northern uh, areas. Now um, you're still biking, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's your next trip? Uh, well, my next trip, uh, I want to you know do more records, but uh, it's going to be a cross continental one as well. Um, so uh, I want to break all the continental records on all continents, basically. So, um, so where's the next one? The next one I have my own either Latin America or uh, Australia um, before I you know go into Africa.
0: Can I give you a little word about Australia? It's going to take sure. you more than twenty nine days.
5: <laughs> <laughs> the charge for looking at this pamphlet is three dollars. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is four dollars. <laughs>
0: I've always wanted to interview and I do this almost every show especially when I're overseas American expats well today I go one step further I'm interviewing an Italian expat <laughs> who who moved here quite by accident 18 years ago or at least discovered Cairo 18 years ago and then decided to move here and now it's you know he I don't even know how to describe Giovanni he's you know, fashion boutique operator stylist restaurateur how do i even talk to uh, talk about you it's, it's giovanni bolandrini did i get it right correct yeah what brought you to Egypt and what keeps you here?
9: Well, what brought me here time is the destiny. Like if you believe in uh, your life, you believe in a destiny, uh, this is where I'm supposed to end and uh, this is where I am. But I I moved from Italy when I was very young to London, uh, out of uh, a bit of poverty and a bit because I needed my success. I know I would never fulfill my dream if I stayed in my small village. So I moved to London where I used to tell my mom that I, I found a job as an actor. Instead, I was homeless and I started to work... Uh, in a restaurant as a dishwasher. So from that moment, I start to escalate my uh, my years and my experience. I opened a boutique in London called Vertis, which I established in 1993. That was a fashion boutique. Yeah, yeah. And uh, basically I always been very uh, in love with art and beauty and luxury because probably I come from poverty, so I never saw the luxury, so I was looking for it. And London gave me the possibility to do what I loved. And uh, slowly, lonely, I don't know, don't ask me how, because I'm a crazy guy. I invested a few pounds that I saved. I mean, I don't, I don't even remember how I did it, but I did it. I opened this store, and three or four years, it became one of the most fashionable stores in, uh, in the world. So I used to discover designers, and people used to come to me, because I had a lot of new, new designers and new styles. After that, uh, I came to Egypt. And uh, How? Through all the celebrity and the people, somebody uh, invited you. Uh, people, uh, singers, uh, Jack Nicholson, uh, Michael Brandon, uh, name them. Uh, there was this gentleman that used to come uh, often to the boutique. I knew he was Egyptian and he was called Nagib. I discovered lately that he was Nagib Sawiris since he invited me to Egypt uh, to spend an holiday and to visit the country. Well, since the day I'm here. And what keeps you here? I love this country. Uh, as I said, there's not much different from where I come from to uh, here. I come from a very poor land with a lot of very nice people, hard-working people. Very poor, but uh, with uh, ethic and uh, with power. I came here because I love the weather, the people. I, again, it's a question that is very difficult to answer. I'm in love, you know, I was, I was talking to Dr. Ranian and said, do you know that when I leave Cairo, I'm homesick. I go to Milan, I go to London, and after three days, I need to come back, and that's very strange because everybody sometimes says, "Oh, but you're Italian, you know you live in London." I, I don't know. I, I love Egypt. And now the former dishwasher has a few restaurants here in Egypt. Yes, and, but uh, this has always been a passion of mine. I'm always been a person that uh, wants to achieve, want to reach goal and uh, is looking for something different. So what kind of cuisine? Italian Mediterranean. I'm shocked. <laughs> yes, obviously. <laughs> yeah, but <when laughs> you are invited if you had a few I'm, days. Listen, I'll I, I come. come
0: the next time I come back. But here's the thing we talked about this earlier in the show, too. When I first came to Egypt, the food here was really quite ordinary. It was basically standard, it was basically subsistence. Uh, you know, we didn't have a food explosion like we have now,
9: right? Well, um, I'm. I'm quite modest, I don't want to uh, expose too much, but uh, when I came to Cairo, I wanted to bring all what I learned. And I knew that people here are good and there is a potential for expanding to style and to teach what I learned. And uh, when I opened the first restaurant here, the first was in Guna, I tried to bring a restaurant that was not an ordinary restaurant, but a lifestyle. I would really like you to invite, to take you to my place because you'll see a vibe which is uh, indescribable. So to all those people, the things that Cairo is a place where you come here and you got guns and tanks around. I mean, you're all crazy. This country, this city is beautiful. It's full of life. Is Cairo by night is amazing. Yeah, that's right. Cairo by night is truly amazing. It's amazing. If you can get through the traffic. In the night, it's okay, but you well, need yeah, to well, know.
0: you're from Italy. You know what? You know what? The first We're rule- the same. Wait a second. <laughs> you are the same. The first rule of Italian driving, you know what it is?
9: What's behind me
0: is not important.
9: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) no, but we we are learning. We are uh, getting civilized as well. (laughs) (laughs) But hopefully, that will the traffic will improve. Uh, Well, we all hope. I mean, I believe a really Egypt has the potential to become a a very a very ordinary country. He deserves it. He has the he has all the weapons to do it. I mean, the he has the lot of people good working. uh, The tourism. I mean, the tourism has to move. And as I said, I hope that also this uh, interview with you helps all the other people to think that this place is such an amazing land to discover that unbelievable.
0: Well, for what it's worth, I've been coming here for 44 years. That should
9: tell you something oh that's good so he has something i've been told that cairo or egypt is something that when people come always come back
1: hello and welcome to alaska flight 438 we'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft the most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants please look at one now
0: student of the University of, American University of Cairo, but she's also the author of Greater Than a Tourist, 50 Travel Tips from a Local, right about, all about Cairo, right? All
10: about Cairo.
0: Now, her name, of course, is Jihan Amin. Jihan, I've been coming to Cairo longer than you've been alive, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, but as much as I think I know about it, I'm still always discovering new things because the, the city is in a constant state of, it, it, Cairo looks like it's in a constant state of decay and a constant state of change. Is that, is, would that be fair enough?
10: Yeah, kind of, yes. Right? It's a very busy city. It's
0: it's not just a construction site. It's it's a destruction site and a construction site.
10: Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, there so, so for
0: someone coming to Cairo for the first time, you know you know they're going to go to see the pyramids. You know they're going out to Giza. They're going to see the Sphinx. I'm one of those people who says, okay, go see that, but then go to Saqqara and see the other pyramids that aren't that well visited, that, that the archaeological work is still going on. Or instead of going to a floating restaurant on the Nile go to a local restaurant have them make you the, the you know the rotisserie chicken wrap it up in aluminum foil and just go hire a felucca and have your own picnic on the Nile right here in Cairo you can do that
10: yeah you can always do that
0: so what are some of the tips that i need to know from you
10: well i don't know cairo is a really kind of a personal experience so when you go to cairo i always i always give advice to not to go with a tour guide or maybe i just want the a tourist to explore more than
0: to just just walk around and see for yes, yourself
10: There is a really beautiful culture, and people are very friendly. You can always ask a stranger for anything, literally. And I would always give advice to just go and explore on your own because you can see better things.
0: What I've always said, and let's see if you agree, that if you ask someone in Cairo, what time is it? You'll never find out what time it is because they're too busy inviting you to their home for dinner. (laughs) (laughs)
10: <laughs> Not really.
0: Well, that's been my experience. I never know what time it is, but I'm always invited to somebody's house for dinner. <laughs> I mean, they're, the the Kyrians are very hospitable.
10: Yeah, it's true.
0: But when you do walk around, where, would you, where do you want to walk everybody around? Where should they go? Old Cairo. Old Cairo.
10: Yeah. It's very historical. You can feel the, the history within the dust of each inch of the place. Because there is a lot of monuments there, historical monuments from complexes to mosques to everything you can ever wish for. to Even local cultural coffee shops. So you can actually find everything you want to taste in Cairo there.
0: When you say the coffee shops, do you have one in line?
10: Um, Umukatsum. There is a coffee shop called Umukatsum Coffee Shop in uh, Khan al-Khalili. It's very beautiful. Oh, right
0: right in Khan Khalili.
10: Yeah, it's Khan al
0: See, now, I'll tell you what I do. Most people will go enter Khan Khalili by the mosque. They'll go right by around the corner there and in that door, or in that alleyway. Yeah. I go the other side. I go by the old gates to the city, the original old gates to the city.
10: Uh, Bab yeah they, yeah, they go
0: back a thousand years, and you enter the back gate. And you um, walk that way, it's so much nicer.
10: It's so nice, especially at night or at dawn, where yeah. it's really, its the sun's still a little bit, it's very early and it's very calming and the, the the scale of the buildings there is very beautiful for you to walk around, especially at that time of the day, we can feel like you're so tiny compared to everything else and so historical and beautiful.
0: And people don't realize, kalili has been around, it's one of the world's great souks, it's been around since the 14th century. yes. And you can find just about anything there.
10: Just about anything.
0: I mean, you can find some really idiotic stuff, and then you can find some amazing finds. Do you know what I go look for there? And I, I did it today. I make it a pilgrimage every time I go. I look for old pocket watches.
10: Pocket watches? Yes,
0: because at the turn of the last century, like 1890, 1900, the Swiss came in to build, the, help build the railways. Okay. And so what came with them? The watchmakers. And they made the watches for the train workers. And even though they were Swiss made, it says Cairo. Okay. And That's really it's beautiful. so cool. So next time you go back to Killili, look for that.
10: I would look for that, definitely. I'm
0: telling you, it's such a cool thing. And it is. You know, everybody else comes to go get their cartouches, I know that. But I wanted to get I always come back for the pocket watches.
10: That's really interesting.
0: Yeah. And you can find it. I mean, I can't buy another inlaid wooden box. I can't do it. I just can't do it. But everything else is pretty cool. Where are the wagons?
1: The wagons are too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home?
4: They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. How do I want anything with a mind of its own
0: bobbing about between my legs? You've heard me earlier in the show talking about the food explosion here in Cairo and how much better it's gotten. Uh, well, my next guest knows a little bit about that. He's the founder of Mito Eats, major food blogger here right here in Cairo. Mito Barsoom, how are you, sir?
6: How are you, Peter?
0: I'm good. I want, I want to tell you a story, Mito, about my history here in, in Cairo. I go back to 1974, and when I used to come here then, I would go to this little place, not far from here, by the way, called Paprika. Oh, yeah. You know, right? And they would make this incredible rotisserie chicken... Mm-hmm. And they'd wrap it up in aluminum foil, and I'd grab it and I'd run out to the Nile, jump on a falouka, and have my own picnic. <laughs> right? This is not in the guidebook. This is not in the, any kind of brochure, and they still do it. Yeah, they they're still, still do doing it. it right? Yeah, yeah. But. The other reason, why and then the only other place I would go. Here's where you're going to laugh at me. Later on, I'd go to either Paprika or, I'd, late at night, I'd go to the Ramses Hilton because they had this great patisserie. You could get great pastries late at yes, night, right? Yes. And they yes, still do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we've come a long way from there, haven't we?
6: We have indeed. I mean, <laughs> that's all very classic. <laughs> I,
0: well, I told, I'm, I'm, in, I'm admitting my age here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but wait a minute. You'd still go back to Paprika, wouldn't you? I would. And the same thing for the patisserie at the Ramses. In so, a heartbeat. Okay, but there's so much more.
6: There is indeed. So what? What's changed? What's changed is basically the fact that people are more aware of diversity and diversity in cuisines and culinary arts these days. Uh, the rise of food blogging in Egypt in general and food critics. Uh, all of these things are showing up and uh, the restaurateurs and the chefs are really starting to step up their game.
0: You know, part of the, of the Egyptian culture is people like to hang out on the streets at night. That's true. right? When I first came here, you you would hang out on the streets, but there wasn't a whole lot to do. Or along the Nile, there were like, you know, sort of floating tourist restaurants and, you know. Roasted nuts. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't really what I had in mind, right? Yeah, yeah. And those, by the way, those restaurants are still here. They're still going up and down the Nile or they're tied to the dock permanently. But we're talking about something else. We're talking about being able to get great sushi here. Yes, right, or 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 great Moroccan
6: fine dining, yeah, you name it. It is. And I mean, Lebanese. Re- yes, yes, absolutely. There's uh, that, That's what I was saying. The diversity and uh, different cultures and different culinary uh, influences have uh, finally arrived here in Egypt, I think. So, uh, and how it's has good. that changed Cairo? I think it's changed Cairo in a way that I used to always have friends who would travel and uh, travel abroad and go to Europe, go to the States and go to Asia and come back and say how good the food was. Now we actually have a... A chance to put Cairo on the culinary map and say that we have some really exquisite restaurants as well.
0: One of the metrics you use, which I think is we should apply everywhere, is potatoes.
6: Potatoes, yeah. I mean,
0: you were telling me, you know, what? Egypt only knew about two kinds of potatoes. Two kinds
6: of potatoes. There's potatoes for frying and there's potatoes for baking and that's all we know and uh, unfortunately there are so many more kinds. We we don't get purple potatoes here. We don't get uh, any other types of potatoes and uh, I, I wish that the produce and the farmers would also be aware of what's going on and expand their uh, diversity.
0: I like to, th- to say, you know, everybody that comes up with these like hip expressions, you know, farm to fork or farm to table. It's been farm to fork since the caveman
6: exactly so
0: what's changed about that here
6: what's changed again is uh purely the awareness of it the amount of waste that used to come out of restaurants here in egypt uh when it was measured and sold to like food banks and stuff like that for charity people actually realize that this is a loss for the restaurant and that they can make use of root to tip concepts uh, rather than throw away the food or or sell it uh, for cheap
0: all right. So here I am in Cairo. Let's say I haven't been coming here since 1974, and you're going to take me to breakfast. Where am I going?
6: Uh, I would take you to a place called Sanos. Uh, it's, a, it's a recently opened restaurant in a place called Galleria Forty in Sheikh Zayed. Uh, they have really, really, really excellent breakfast items. <laughs> like? Like, uh, last time I was there, I had uh, toast with uh, guacamole on it and two poached eggs on top. Is there
0: a restaurant in the world now that doesn't have t- uh, toast with guacamole on it?
6: Well, that's true. It, it's kind of a trend, isn't it? Yeah, it it's, is. It's, um, it's becoming a thing. And uh, the problem is that some people know how to do it properly and others don't. And you tell me they do? Sanos does, okay. yes. And lunch? <laughs> lunch. Lunch, I'd probably take you to Kazlak. It's a place in Mahdi. Uh, by uh, an Egyptian young man who decided to only use local ingredients and local produce and local beef in his uh, menu. And dinner? And dinner, I take you definitely to a place called Eska, which is a Japanese-European fusion restaurant. And when fine. I think
0: about Japanese-European fusion, of course, I immediately think of Cairo. <laughs> yes.
6: <laughs> it's, uh, it's a bit far-fetched from Cairo. But uh, it's it's definitely exquisite. You've been
3: listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free